0: Good morning, everybody. It's an incredible privilege and honor to be here in front of you and share the Word of God with you all. This morning, the passage that we'll read together is from 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 1 through 12. Again, we go over the entire chapter this morning, but together we'll read the first half from verses 1 through 12, 1 Samuel chapter 26. If you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 233. And when you have found it, please rise as we read the word of the Lord. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon, but David remained in the wilderness When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear I will not strike him twice but David said to Abishai do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless and David said as the Lord lives the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. This is the word of the Lord. So chapters 24, 25, and 26 were meant to be taken together. And when you take them together, it's very difficult to miss the parallels that we see even in chapters 24 and 26. Both times, David finds himself in front of Saul while Saul is at his most vulnerable state. And in the middle, in chapter 25, with Nabal, Nabal acts as a hinge of sorts between the two chapters, but even with all its similarities, there are clear differences in the chapters, these differences that we'll be going over this morning. Sometimes we follow the Word of God. We adhere to the promises God gives His people. But then how come my life isn't all sunshine and roses? want to go into a little history this morning before I begin there was a man named John Huss and he was born in the 14th century he was a priest and he came under this amazing conviction that he could not shake have you ever been through that in your life where you have this heavy conviction and you believe it's from the Lord it's from God and you just can't shake it in fact Many refer to John Huss, him, as an early church reformer, even though he came a 100 years before Martin Luther, the great reformer. He came from a town. John Huss came from a town called Husinec, and that's where he got his surname Huss, and Huss means goose, like geese. This is why when he, when he went against the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope, John Huss was excommunicated for insubordination, and when that didn't slow him down, they took him to Constance in Germany on the charge of heresy. He was tried, and when he would refuse to recant, he was found guilty and sentenced to immediate death. The punishment was that he was to be burned at the stake. And as the fire was being lit, Under his feet in July 1415, it is reported that he said, You may kill the goose, but there will come a swan, and him you will not be able to kill. Many believed this to be a prophecy fulfilled because 100 years later in Germany, a monk would nail his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg church doors. Martin Luther would go on to be one of the most well-known reformers of the church. And this is why also many medieval depictions of Martin Luther have a swan next to him. But what I want to do is, even though this may be a familiar story for many, I want to go over what John Huss did. What did he do to get himself martyred? Well, Huss believed, and he taught that it was Christ, Jesus Christ, that was the head of the church, not the Pope. And that was revolutionary. What do you mean Christ is the head of the church? And then he would go on to list what we know now as the six errors. These six errors is what Luther would find and he would extrapolate into his 95 thesis. I'm not gonna go into all the six errors, but some notable ones could be his third error that uh, that he wrote about, which is the priestly pretension to remit guilt and punishment of sin. He would say, it is not the priest that forgives sin. It's God that forgives sin. The priests don't have this pretension or right or duty or even authority another one was the sixth error which he called simony simony is the act of selling church offices or roles or sacred things it's named after simon magus in the bible who's described in acts as offering the disciples' payment for a role or to empower him with the Holy Spirit. Give me this Holy Spirit. Here's some money. And then Peter would say, you can go to hell with that money. So that's simony. And he was telling people, even a hundred years before Martin Luther, that you couldn't sell indulgences, that you couldn't sell sacred rights to people but the bottom line wasn't that he, was, he wasn't only attacking indulgences. He wasn't only asking for reform in these areas. He was going after the whole head of the system, and that was the Pope. Before he was excommunicated, John Huss was sent to Prague, and he went to a church called Bethlehem Church. Interestingly enough, he also nailed his six errors to the doors of Bethlehem Church. He did something incredible there, though, while he was at Bethlehem Church. He did something that no one was doing. What he did was he preached in the people's language. He didn't preach in Latin. You could only speak and preach in Latin in the church back in that day. But he was preaching the word of God in the people's language. And that wasn't only politically incorrect. You simply did not do that in churches. He was basically violating every protocol that there was. So they threw him out of the church, and he began to preach in the countryside, on the outside. He was such a gifted preacher that large swaths of people followed him to the countryside to listen to him preach there. He even had followers that would name themselves the Hussites, He would eventually go on to write De Ecclesia, which means concerning the church, where he claimed that Christ founded the church. It was Christ that founded the church, not Peter. And so Luther found some of his writings, and Martin Luther would be enamored by this. But Huss does something else that is monumental for the Reformation that Luther also does. He introduces what we now know, what we call congregational singing not choral singing congregational singing this is when the entire church would sing a hymn and not just the choir and it's all over the scriptures not just the old testament and the psalms but the new testament as well in ephesians 5 19 to 20 it says we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the lord In James 5.13, it says, Is anyone anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In Matthew 26 and Mark 14, before Jesus and his disciples went to the Mount of Olives, what did they do? It says they sang a hymn together, and then they went. And probably most famously, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns in jail in Acts 16, and it says the prisoners were listening to them. This is an incredible thing that we actually have benefited from in the life of John Huss. But I say all this to remind you that everything that you are going through now may not be fulfilled in your lifetime the things that you think that ought to be right or ought to be fulfilled, the promises that you are holding on to, you may, and we hope and pray that our prayers for this generation are answered in this lifetime because God's plan will not be thwarted. But John Huss may not have seen everything that he started come to pass on a wide scale like the Reformation, but we see now that God used John Huss to plant seeds that Luther and the other reformers would pick up and run with even to today. I mentioned congregational singing because this is something that we also as a church have discovered. In our generation, the music that we listen to is mainly something like a rock style where you would see a stage and that's all the things that you would hear. However, when you start to hear the congregation singing, there's something that happens in our spirits In our hearts, when you hear the person next to you singing truths about God, singing these hymns, and you hear the congregation sing out loud, our spirits are lifted because this is how we were meant to worship God. It says so in the the select scriptures that I've read. And when we follow what the Bible says, we see that God is the one that gave us these things for our good. So now saying all this, how do you see certain promises in your life that you believe ought to be, ought to be fulfilled, but have not yet come to pass? And so this is that kind of chapter. And we see in this chapter three basic sections. Four, if we count the introduction from verses one through five. So we have three basic sections including uh, not including the introduction so we'll have the introduction then we'll have patience then we'll have encouragement and then we'll have hope introduction patience encouragement hope first the introduction just like any hero of the faith one characteristic that shines through all the heroes is courage it's courage The Ziphites once again tell Saul the whereabouts of David. And it's not clear. What's not clear is that whether Saul was excited to finally find and catch David or whether he was compelled to go out because of the Ziphites. Ziphites told him where he was and he had to save face, so he had to go out. And while the narrative doesn't give us the underlying motivation for Saul's response to the Ziphite information, what's important is the action it's the action that saul takes that's important you know there have been some really iconic anti-hero movies in the past movies like dirty harry or maybe jack sparrow might be something that the younger people might be familiar with or john wick right undoubtedly one of the most famous anti-heroes is Michael Corleone from The Godfather. I went to the bakery yesterday and I saw a t-shirt that quoted the movie, leave the gun, take the cannoli, and I said, take my money. So I bought a t-shirt that said that. But these days, movies have taken an even darker and more interesting turn. It's no longer the anti-hero theme that suffices for people, if you've noticed. It's more of a pro-villain theme, not an anti-hero theme, but a pro-villain theme, not just pro-villain, but we must go through the origin stories of these sinister characters that are designed to make us feel empathy toward them. Movies like Cruella or Maleficent or The Joker. I'm sure there are many others. It's where you would take these very classic villains, these evil characters, and you would think of a story that would have the person watching the movie go, "Oh, poor guy. I guess he's not so bad. She's not so bad. It's because this thing happened to them. That's why they're like this." Corella DeVille is a character in the movie 101 Dalmatians. But she's a character that skins puppies so that she can make a fur coat out of them. Not only does she skin the puppies, she first kidnaps those puppies. So she steals these puppies and she skins them to make fur coats. That's Cruella de Maleficent is based off of a character in a classic folktale that we all know as Sleeping Beauty. And there, an evil fairy pronounces a curse on the princess where she would prick her finger on a spindle and die. And Joker's Batman, Joker is Batman's arch nemesis. But the recent depictions of these characters are all about how they were too once they were innocent. But it was the evil and the hypocrisy of society that made them this way. And so the moviegoer and spectator has their emotions drawn up to feel empathy for these characters. It's very Rousseauian, it's very Marxist. And if people disagree with you, you can just say they're being too political, whatever it is. But the scriptures and the narrative here, the way it's written, show us something different. It's a different way than what the world today is trying to do. It's the resulting action that matters when it comes to sin. Whatever your motivation, what is being shown to us is that sin harms, sin kills, sin destroys. And that is what Saul is setting out to do. He knows he took an oath not to kill or harm David in the previous chapters. It doesn't matter now. What he does is he takes 3,000 chosen men, his navy seals, to go after David in the wilderness. But David, to make sure, to make sure he sends out spies, and he finds out indeed Saul has come for him. And it looks like David was on higher ground because he was able to see how Saul and his army was placed. Saul was with Abner, the son of Ner. I find that funny because Ab means father. Ner is his name. So Abner means my father is Ner. And then it says the son of Ner. So my father is Ner. I'm the son of Ner. Anyway, that's how it's written. But he was also in chapter 14 where we saw that Abner, the son of Ner, is Saul's cousin. So Saul's cousin has been the commander of his army since chapter 14 for that long. So here's the backdrop. Saul has come for David with 3,000 hand-picked soldiers along with the commander of his army, Abner. And they have encamped on a hill And Saul is in the middle, surrounded by his men, all 3,000 elite soldiers, with Abner, the commander of his army, by his side. That's the backdrop. So here's the first point. From verses 6 through 12, patience. David was with two of his men, it says, And he would ask the two who would go down into the camp with him. So David and this other person would put themselves in an incredibly dangerous situation by going to a camp with 3,000 highly trained soldiers. To do what? Why? And we'll see. Abishai volunteers. So at night, David and Abishai go down into the camp. They get to the middle of the camp where Saul is sleeping. And Abishai surmises that they were on a two-man commando raid and says this to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. This has to be God. We made it all the way through and here we are. He's right in front of our faces. This has to be God. I like how whenever something incredible happens, our natural inclination is to attribute it to a higher power. I get that Abishai and David knew who Yahweh was, but even people who claim to have no religion, they speak of luck or speak or say, wow, in astonishment, wow. You know, the word wow comes from the word vow, as in I vow or I make an oath under God. If you look at our language and other languages, almost every exclamatory expression has religious undertones. Why is that? Why is that? It's almost an involuntary call to the greater being who is responsible for this great act. Wow. Even the word woe is from the word who, right? Who's doing this? It's pointing to someone greater. You can't get away from it. Even in our basic language, when you see something incredible, you go, wow. Or you go, whoa. But here he is, literally in front of you, and you're like, whoa. He's helpless, and his weapon is right next to him to boot. And he goes, let me take it and run him through. It'll be quick, it'll be thorough, And how ironic would it have been if Saul would be killed by his own weapon and everyone discover it in the morning. But here David gets theological on Abishai. Here he has restraint and patience again like chapter 24, but it is a more informed and deeper patience. He starts off with the same thing he said to his men in the cave in chapter 24, but he ends it with what he's learned from chapter 25. See, the Lord struck down Nabal in 25, 38. It says struck down in chapter 25, verse 38. And here in verse 10, David uses the same word for strike down. It's a different word for striking that Abishai uses in verse 8. Abishai says, let me strike him. It's a different word that David uses. David uses the same word from chapter 25, verse 38. And as David elaborates, it's God that would strike him as he did Nabal, or he will die some other day, even perhaps maybe a natural death, or he'll go into battle and die. But David has learned to trust in God and not his own hands. He will not be the one going against the Lord's anointed. God anointed Saul, then God will take him away himself. This is a deeper patience, a more informed restraint, and a solidified trust in God. He admits this, though. He admits that he doesn't know how Saul will die. God will do it, but he will not be the one to take Saul's life into his hands. And that's the point. David's patience is backed by his trust in the Lord. David understands that his salvation does not come by him politically manipulating things with his own hands, but by lifting it up to God. It sounds obvious, maybe. You're listening to this. That's obvious. Obviously, P.U. is going to say something like that here. But here's where we can miss the point. He may not know what God will do exactly, but he also knows what he cannot do. He may not know what God is going to do exactly, but he knows what he can't do. That means if you have marriage issues and your faith dictates to you that Christ will resolve these problems for you, you know this, you believe this, you just don't know exactly how your marriage problems will be resolved. That's good but it's also important for you to know that while you have marital problems you should not have an affair with another man or woman and that may sound disconnected at first glance but this temptation is something that many give into well my spouse isn't here for me physically or emotionally or spiritually and i have needs i need to be fulfilled And maybe even subconsciously what happens is we start to think, maybe I'll text this other person, that is not my spouse, and share intimacy that way. You see, God's way and how he's going to resolve certain things may not be specifically clear, but what is clear, we ought to follow. David didn't know all the details, but what was clear, he obeyed and he followed. It's not hard to imagine what Abishai may have felt. He risked his life, why? To steal a spear and a water jug? What's going on? And so we go to the next point, encouragement. Encouragement from verses 13 to 16. How did David and Abishai get into a camp with 3,000 well-trained soldiers and not manage to wake a single one of them? Were they that good? The Bible tells us that it was the Lord's doing. He had put them all into a deep sleep. So the actors in this narrative weren't just Abishai and David. The Lord had also been moving. David gets even to higher ground and further away, and he breaks the common silence that drowned them in their deep slumber. And he shouts this, Will you not answer Abner? What a thing to shout. Will you not answer Abner? That's got to be the most unnerving way to wake up. You wake up with the enemy shouting at you what seems to be something like midway of a speech or the tail end of something. What you would do is, you would, it's like going to your spouse while they are in a deep sleep and you start shouting, are you not going to turn that alarm off? But there's no alarm ringing, right? This is terrible. I'm not, I'm not giving you any ideas. It's a terrible thing to do and that will definitely give you some minus points in your marriage. But I'm sure he knew David, Abner knew David, and I'm sure Abner knew David's voice. So Abner responds like he's stumbling out of bed. Who are you is what he says. And while Abner is gathering his wits, David goes on a tirade against him. You careless bodyguard, you deserve to die. That's some serious, serious accusation. You are a career bodyguard. You're a captain of the Lord's army, Israel's army. You not only failed, but you failed big time. You deserve to die. And David isn't joking at this point. He provides the evidence. Here's the spear and the water jug. And this development should be alarming for anyone. 3,000 handpicked men, the leader of your army, and David is still able to go in and come out like they weren't even there. It's as if he didn't have the 3,000 men around him. Saul, for all his men, is defenseless, is the symbolism. Saul had been defanged, and without his spear, well, I'm sorry, Saul would have been defanged without a spear, and his men seemed like they weren't even there. And David is holding Saul's spear in that moment as a symbol of victory that no one, not even Saul, could deny. And it was for all the people of that camp to witness. You know, sometimes the symbol of victory in our lives might not be as grand as this, but in our tiredness, in our weariness, God comes through for his people. We recognize that he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me besides quiet waters and restores my soul. He gives his children deep sleep that is not fraught with anxiety when they get up, but rather they are filled with peace and hope for the day ahead, because the children of God realize this is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We have confidence that he will lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, that means he will not fail. We will become even more holy, more sanctified, more like our Savior Jesus as the days go on. And even though we may walk through dark valleys, dark times, even though the days are shortened and the night seems really long because of sin all around us, we need not fear because God's promise is that he is with us To the end of the age, we can be sure, even in this day and age, that those who rebel against God and his holy ordinances will be defanged, will be dethroned, because a righteous king stands sovereign over every king, every president, and every other governing authority. Here's the third and last point hope from verses 17 to the end. Imagine how Saul must have felt. Maybe Saul is still frazzled, but he can only give David the my son response. Is that you, my son? And David doesn't stay on the son part, but immediately goes into an address, which which he starts off with a double honorific, my lord, the king. But he starts this defense. Why are you stirred up against me again? And here he gives a brilliant argument. Because if it's the Lord that stirred you up against me, then let me give up an offering that God has appeased. But if it's men that stirred, up, stirred you up against me, let them be cursed." And then he he goes on to share why this is so terrible for him. Why is this so terrible that David is going through this? Because it says wherever he goes, he will be in pagan territory. That meant he would not be able to go to worship the Lord properly. Basically, they would not only be chasing David out of the kingdom, but telling him to serve another god or other gods. Serve other gods. Go and serve other gods. That's basically what he is being told then. Yes, David knew that you could pray and commune with God anywhere. He writes this in Psalm 139.7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Right? Where can I hide from God? David knows this. But David understood that to be cut off from the land would be to be cut off from the ordinances that God commands his people to observe. You can only have fellowship with the saints within the church community. You don't have fellowship with yourself. That's not a thing. That's not how God designed the gatherings for his people. Being away from the land, his people would have been a separation from the tabernacle, the sacrifice, the priest, the festivals, etc. All that God has designed to encourage and strengthen the believer, he would lose out on. These are symbols of God's promise to us, and we ought not to give it up so easily. This is why when you might even be tempted not to gather with the saints on the Lord's Day. You might be tempted just to worship at home. Read your Bible at home alone. Pray by yourself at home alone. But this is not the design that we see throughout the Bible. It's public worship that is most important to believers. This country was even founded by people who desired to give public worship without restraint. The land back home persecuted them for their Puritan beliefs. Where do you have the sacraments administered, baptisms witnessed? Where do you partake in the Lord's Supper? It's the public worship of a local church. Not being able to participate in it would cause David severe grief as he explains it here. And we also should take note as well. The public gathering is incredibly important for believers. It gives us hope. That's how God has designed it. And Saul, after hearing this confession, confesses that he has sinned. And this is what Saul says, please come back, come back. And promises again that he will not harm David. Saul is going about how wrong he was, but it's almost as if David cuts him off and he shouts back, here is the spear. If you read it, he goes, here is the spear, take it back. And he tells Saul that it was God who put his life in his hands that day. It's God who convicted his heart not to kill Saul or hurt Saul, and it's God that he trusts. What is he saying? I trust in God, not Saul's words. Notice that David doesn't heed Saul's words to come back to him. When Saul says David could trust him again, David says he instead trusts in God because of all the things that, he, that has happened. And then David and Saul would go and separate and go on their own ways. And this right here in chapter 26 will be the last time that they would see each other. So what is the most excellent point? In every one of these sections and speeches that was read today, Saul's spear is mentioned. In every single one. I believe Saul was very confident with his spear. When he wanted to kill David in the past, he didn't try to run him through with a sword or shoot him with an arrow. What he did was he would fling or he flung his spear at David, even though David dodged it, right? Even in today's passage, it was Saul's spear that was next to his head. That means it was a very precious weapon to him. When I trained in sword fighting, the first lesson that you're taught, even before you pick up you know, the bamboo swords, is that your sword is your life. You treat it as if it were your own life. It's not an appendage. The sword isn't an appendage, as some people might think. It's your life. Your weapon is you. If you lose your weapon, you might as well forfeit your life. And that's how I was trained. It wasn't just how well you attacked or defended. Your weapon represented you. And I think that Saul's spear was just that. It was his every confidence, his security, his strength. All throughout this chapter, Saul's spear is mentioned, but it is contrasted with something. What is Saul's spear contrasted with? It's contrasted with trust in God. You know, we tend to trust our abilities, especially the ones we are confident of. But what we see here is that Saul's spear was not able to save him. David wasn't fooled to trust in Goliath's sword either, and we know he had that. But what David did was he trusted in the name of the Lord our God for his salvation. And in this regard, there are two types of people. One who trusts in himself for salvation and the other who trusts in God for salvation. You know, the Pharisees, even though they were religious, trusted in their own devices, their own skills, their own merits for their salvation. And when the true Savior came, they were filled with rage and jealousy, and they would plan to crucify and kill him. You see, the most excellent point is that no matter how skilled we are, no matter how good we are with our abilities, we cannot save ourselves. And when we couldn't save ourselves, God would send his son Jesus to save us. And that's the most beautiful point, isn't it? When we think that we have this ability to save ourselves, to manipulate whatever we can, and we've come to the end of our wits, our devices, the end of the rope, we have nowhere else to turn to. That's when God would send his son, Jesus Christ, and he is the one, when we place our trust in him, would completely, holistically, absolutely save his people. And so when we understand this, who is it that we would trust? In horses and chariots? No, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What is it that we trust in? Your talents? Your skills? No, we trust in our Savior Jesus Christ, and we express it. In worship, we express it by gathering together and taking the sacraments. We believe that the symbols that God has given us is what points to Jesus Christ. You see, the spear is a symbol of Saul's confidence in himself. But we have other symbols that God has given us where we say our confidence is not in ourselves, our boast is not in ourselves. But our confidence and our boast is in God. And that's what it means to take in the, partake in the sacraments. That's what it means to worship God. That's what it means when we gather and we humble ourselves before the word and we listen to have his spirit transform us. Now I said these three chapters were put together. And I said some points that were difficult for us to take, perhaps in the last three weeks. But perhaps it's because that the Word of God is not us. Sometimes we have difficulty with the Word of God because we are not God. We didn't write this. And so instead of trying to transform God's Word, we have God's Word transform us. And when we are being transformed, sometimes it can be painful, it can be difficult. I don't think it was easy for David to say the things that he said when he said them. Imagine having your enemy, someone who's been trying to kill you for who knows how long, making you and your men suffer in this way, people dying because of this man's uh, vanity. And yet, he places his trust in God. And this is what we also should take away. Don't place your trust in any other power, whether it be government Whether it be any other authority, God says, place your trust in him. He alone can save, and he alone is the Lord God who is worthy of all praise. Let's pray. Lord, we admit that for many of us, we have lived lives where we have gone to the end of our rope. We have done everything we can to deny you, to not follow you. And when everything had been used up, dried up, that's when we come begging. But we also recognize that it is because of your mercy, sheer grace, that we are able to do this. You are truly a merciful and loving God. So as we come to you, we come to you with our broken hearts, we come to you raw, we come to you not hiding what we have gone through, but we lift up our hearts to you, asking God that you would heal, that you would transform, and that you would make it yours. Let's take this time to pray and lift up a prayer to God as we reflect on the passage and perhaps even the passages that we have gone over Perhaps the Spirit of God is challenging us where we have maybe placed our trust in other things than God. Let us repent and turn from those things as the Spirit of God convicts us so that we can fully and wholly trust in the true Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.